0: This episode of The Moment is sponsored by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses, estimate your federal quarterly taxes, and more. See what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash moment. And by stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code MOMENT. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Brian Garner, who is, uh, I'm going to say, the, the foremost expert on word usage in the country, American word usage. Brian is the uh, editor and writer of Modern American Usage, which people in my world just call Garner. Like, uh, hey, get the Garner out and we'll see who's right. Uh, And uh, he also teaches seminars across the country to lawyers uh, who want to learn how to write better. Really, anyone who wants to learn how to express themselves or to write better should familiarize themselves with uh, Mr. Garner's work. Brian, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. So I first, um, the first time I heard of you, and I've been a word geek my whole life, uh, was when David Foster Wallace wrote this uh, wonderful review of uh, the second edition or the first edition? It was the first edition, yeah. The the first edition of American Usage, and the piece was then um, expanded, or um, he got rid of the editing choices that his editor made. Right, right. And he put it in Consider the Lobster. So it came out in Harper's Tense Present... And I think that's
1: still available on the web, and then consider the lobster as the is the expanded
0: unedited version and when i I remember reading it and feeling um finally like there was a place i could fi- I could go to to really like sort of <laughs> really bathe in these questions that had been driving me crazy for a long time, which I didn't know to frame as the difference between being a prescriptivist and a descriptivist. And the way Wallace talked about your um, fairness, uh, essentially, and your love of language made me think, um, oh, this guy must be a kindred spirit. At that time, I don't think I knew that you and Justice Scalia were such pals and I'm I'm glad I didn't <laughs> cuz probably my liberal bias actually, would have kept me away. We weren't at the time. We were not. But uh, I'm wondering a couple things. How did your life change? I want to get into I have a lot of language questions, but I'm so interested in somebody who is a lawyer, a successful lawyer and who decided to follow this um almost by its nature uh, atavistic pursuit. Uh because where you know to so much of the world these are Questions that have no relevance, but to people uh, who care it 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 matters um, almost more than than anything else so How did this all happen, and then how did your life change when Wallace uh, began talking about you?
1: Well, to lawyers of all people, usage ought to matter more and and just using the language well ought to matter more than in almost any other calling. I think that law is probably the highest. Use of good language and of uh, eloquence, and so the, really the reason I was drawn to law was specifically that that I was interested in language and um, and good writing and pronunciation and punctuation and all those things. But the rhetoric of law in in, in law these things matter a great deal more than in any other profession, and they have, it, it affects people's lives. So. Uh, I saw that combination of interests as being quite natural. But in fact, very few people go into law because they're interested in, in speaking well and writing well. But that was my main uh, draw. You, you
0: talk about the fact that you think lawyers are um, often, uh, particularly you said, uh, horrible writers.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's amazing. But lawyers are also the most highly paid professional writers in the world as a, as a class. But, uh, for example, I often tell law firms, as I will say tomorrow, wouldn't it be amazing if if a law firm actually decided to use standard American punctuation, right? Because there's not a law firm in the country that even comes close.
0: Or used, um, the most simple and direct word to express, uh, what they're trying to express well absolutely yeah those things go together uh i think i um, lawyer screenwriters are probably if you think about the class the highest paid writers maybe working screenwriters probably yeah uh it's a very small group but if
1: you took all the screenwriters and you took all the lawyers in aggregate lawyers yes. are the most highly paid rhetoricians in the world
0: and, and i think actually screenwriters um would be less offended I imagine lawyers are at first when you tell them they don't write very well um, because screenwriters are used to being criticized in a way that lawyers maybe aren't. Well, it's, that's probably true. And
1: they, they, they're not required to have higher degrees necessarily, which doesn't guarantee anything, but, uh, it's true.
0: But when did you start to the, start to realize that? Um, I know I've read a bit about you and I know that you are, uh, there's a legacy in your family of. People who care about words but when did you realize that you really loved loved words and that it was important to you to not only use them to communicate but to communicate about them
1: well when I was uh, I don't know 15 or 16 a girl that I had a crush on said you know you have a really big vocabulary and I had simply used the word facetious and this was a life-changing moment for me because Instead of calling her on the telephone or anything like that, I, I just started. Uh, I went and got our unabridged dictionary at home yeah. and started finding the hardest words in it and copying them out. And I spent months doing this. I never called her on the telephone right. or anything like
0: sure, that. Sure, you, but you were having a quiet conversation with her in your head. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. <laughs> that's great. That's right. Boy, she's going to love this one. Yeah. And, and I have still something like a 1,500-page notebook with about 30 words per page of very arcane, recondite, recherche words. And I loved these words. But And I soon forgot about her, but discovered that, that language was my main intellectual interest.
0: Did you forget about her? Did you make the mistake of showing her your book of... Your no, crazy I book of I never words scrawled I never like, no, you know, I never in
1: that. block handwriting. That would have been too stalkerish. I never did that.
0: I would have. <laughs> no, I
1: actually kind of kept it a secret. Although my older brother used to ridicule me to my parents saying, Brian's upstairs copying words out of the dictionary again. You know, well, why don't you do something useful,
0: Brian? Well, but there, there is an incredible power in gaining mastery over language. Um, not a power that maybe is going to um, uh, be useful with other teenagers.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, David Foster Wallace uh, wrote in that piece, he said, Garner is strangely silent on the point that um, given the interest that he clearly had as a teenager, this must have resulted in um, beating re- no wedging, repeated <laughs> but, wedgies. Yeah. Which I never uh <clears throat> never experienced. I didn't even know what the wedgie was until I read his article.
0: Listen, I think a rule that's important to keep is um never like the Cone brothers say there's nothing more foolish than a man chasing after his hat. Second to that is uh nothing more foolish than admitting you've been wedgied. <laughs> there's no you don't need to <laughs> But so when when he wrote the piece, where were you professional like where where were you in your life, particularly when Lobster came out and the you know, that book was so incredibly well read um uh, had the book gotten a great deal of attention american usage was your profile changed dramatically by that and then did how did it hit you well he wrote me a a long letter um
1: and sent me his manuscript and 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 apparently he originally wrote it for an outlet that uh rejected it and said, we, we can't publish it. Then it was shopped around at uh, the New York Review of Books, which also rejected it. They, they said it's impossible to print. Harper's came up with a very clever way of, of printing the piece. But when he, when he first wrote me this letter and he'd called my office and, and spoken to my secretary, um, I really didn't even know who he was. I knew about Infinite Jest, right? But I did not recognize the name David Foster Wallace, and I would say uh, it's changed my life in in very good ways. I, I'm not sure that my collaboration with Justice Scalia would ever have materialized if it weren't for David Foster Wallace, and I can explain that. Please do. And and that would that's a huge life changing event. But shortly after. Uh, The Harper's piece came out. I was in Boston and I I went to to Harvard Square and I was uh, there for just 15 minutes to go to the bookshop and I was going to look at the linguistic section and uh, I discovered a big stack of my books, about 30 of them, Modern American Usage, which he called it was then called a Dictionary of Modern American Usage. And I always called it DMAU, although in his review he called it ADMAU. Right, and that was clearly a result of Wallace. Right, why were there so many books? Well, that's right. I mean, that's uh, I would ordinarily be lucky to find two copies of one right. of my books. Yeah, and then I get into line to to check out because I'm I'm very short on time, and I see Anthony Lewis. Uh, The New York Times writer and the author of what is the great book? Gideon's Trumpet in the 1960s about Gideon versus Wainwright. And he covered the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, I've never read that book, though. I know I uh, should. Anthony Lewis was a very important writer. And I had met him about a year earlier. And I thought about saying something to him, but I decided not to. And then he went up to the counter. I decided just to let him have his privacy. But he was holding my book and he was buying modern American usage. And so I I did approach him and and we had a great conversation for about five minutes. But to have a Pulitzer Prize winning writer buying your book in your presence, I mean, this is just kind of a surreal experience. But those kinds of things were happening to me because of the Wallace interview.
0: Did you realize then that people were going to form, and did you want this or did it occur to you that people were going to form such a strong attachment to the book to really have, I mean, you must, um, you must get letters from people or, or see people or, or meet them and, and realize that they're, I mean, much like you were having the silent conversation with the 15-year-old girl, that they are having this conversation with you um, in, in the course of their lives as speakers and as, uh, and as writers. Did, did, did you know that, be- was that happening before that? And did you ever anticipate that that would happen? Not
1: happening nearly as much. I mean, the very way in which I met you, this, this has resulted, this very podcast is probably resulted from the David Foster Wallace review.
0: No. Yeah, in, in reading that, it made me want to know about this person. You know, be, it's very rare. Um and excuse me for saying very rare, but I think it's actually not just rare, but very quite rare that um that the that a li- you know, I, I don't know first of all whether you you sit in the linguistics section. Um and I'm wondering whether you think of yourself as a linguist or a lexographer or uh, some combination. I was reading Pinker recently. And, uh, you know, obviously Pinker has now sort of tried to or succeeded in in certain ways in erasing the line. Well, I mean, professionally succeeded in erasing the line. But in in a way, it it feels to me uh, like you had already started blurring the line from the other direction. How do you how do you see it? Well, between descriptivist and so well between being a linguist a psycho you know a linguist and I mean which where do you put yourself in in that I'm a
1: lexicographer in fact I was uh, I found my book in the reference section not in the linguistic section yeah and there's no author in the world who doesn't walk into a bookshop and just kind of find out, okay, how many of my books do they have in the same way that you they walk are into a block? Head. You used to walk into a blockbusters and find out, you know, how many copies of my films do they have? Absolutely. You have to do that.
0: Yeah. We do these things. We first you uh, to express something and then to hope that there's someone there to receive it. So you want to make sure it's being received.
1: There's that. And you want to know how the marketers are doing and then the release and so on. Um, well, I don't see myself as a linguist, in the in the normal sense. I have, I have an obsession with books on linguistics, and I own several thousand of them, hey. and I read them, and but I'm I'm also very critical of them, especially when they get into not hard language points, but they start getting into politics. Pinker, for example, arguing that. In his book, The Language Instinct, that that language is an instinct and that you shouldn't criticize the way people use language any more than you should criticize how whales emit their moans. Because you would never say that this whale is is moaning incorrectly. Although recently, I don't know if you saw this, about three years ago, there was a whale who was moaning uh, incorrectly and she was by herself and she had no. She was abandoned because she couldn't communicate. She was several decibels off. Uh, from what all of her other sp- the members of her species were uh, the sounds that they were emitting oh. so nobody could communicate with her and she was isolated she was moaning incorrectly
0: right yeah. which, which would which uh, kind of belies br- 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 pinker. yeah sure <laughs> which uh you find that you finally say to yourself i have to write that to to pinker but the, the book pinker recently you know just put out um is much more of a usage book i mean it is a usage book than you know language instinct is uh as much about neurology and psychology and society as it is. Have you done
1: a podcast with him?
0: No. Um, No. But uh, do you you think Pinker's new book is a a good book? You
1: know, he begins with uh, the statement that how much he loves style books and he loves the elements of style. Then he proceeds within two pages to start trashing the elements of style by Strunk and White And he's clearly trying to replace Drunken White, which his book will never do. Um, It's uh, no, it's not a very good book. It's a confused book because he's trying to be prescriptivist while at the same time being descriptivist. And he has all kinds of drawings in there that nobody could follow. And I don't know if you've read my interview with David Foster Wallace. Crack this way.
0: I I bought at least 10 copies of that and, and, and have, uh, g- gave them out to people. Um, it's an incredible book and, and I love that it. it's, it's you and David Foster Wallace, um, in the shadow of, uh, him having written about you, you invited him, uh, to come see you and you guys sat around talking and you taped this conversation about language and for, for word geeks, it's, um, I just wished that it, I, I, I really wish that it were 10 times as long. That you right. guys were, had two weeks
1: right. to talk. I wish we had. But at the end of that interview, he talks about uh, some of the absurdities of Pinker. And, uh, you know, I, I think Stephen Pinker's a, a very good man. But I, to, to me, this newest book on a, a sense of style is an attempt to co-opt the, um, the prescriptivist without without actually acknowledging that that's what he's doing. So he's completely flip-flop in his positions. But this is this is something that tends to happen with popular descriptivists. They realize that popular descriptivism does not sell, and you, you need to come out with some prescriptive uh, notions of how to do it well, and they end up writing kind of confused books.
0: Let's, let's define some terms for a second for people who aren't... Um already with us here. Can you talk about the difference between prescriptivism and descriptivism? What those terms mean?
1: Yeah, it's, it's actually a very simple thought. Um, There are a lot of people who consider themselves devout descriptivists. A A descriptivist think, believes that the most valid pronouncements about language are based on how people actually use the language. Now they would. They also believe that prescriptivists just sit around in their chairs and come up with rules that nobody ever actually followed. That's not actually true. A prescriptivist is simply someone who believes that that certain uses of language are better than others, and certain word choices are preferable to others. That is preferable to say preferable as opposed to preferable, for example, and that more. And the uh, the mere observation that more educated folks tend to say preferable, and less well educated folks tend to say preferable, and there are you know lots of examples, not just pronunciation but but word choice, um, and that therefore it's possible, like any other, as with any other tool, it's possible to use language more effectively or less effectively. And a prescriptivist wants to figure out what are the more effective uses of language to a broad audience, and especially to an educated audience. That should be a fairly uncontroversial point, but uh, it, it absolutely belies uh, uh, the, the dogma of descriptivists who believe that in the extreme form, they actually believe that no native speaker of English can make a mistake, and that if if a speaker of a language says it, it is ipso facto correct,
0: well, no matter what it might be. There's something um, utopian about that view because what it leaves out, um, to me, what it leaves out is the fact that those on the receiving end are making judgments anyway, and so that. If you, it's one thing to say no native speaker can make a mistake, but if, if the people to whom that native speaker, uh, is speaking, uh, for instance, people who might be, uh, thinking about hiring that person, uh, they're going to be at a huge disadvantage to somebody with the same resume who speaks, um, eloquently or speaks in a way that is considered appropriate. And look that's why I think in a, in a way linguistics gets heavily into philosophy, and what what you do you have a clear philosophy, you set it out, but i it seems to me that you try to hew to um very practical standards with an eye towards beauty and euphony as as well, which is why e- even people who might in in other areas be really um liberal and for a very you know all sorts of ways to remedy um or opposed to elitism look at what you do and go well because you're not to me and 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 you say this in in the essays you write i've I've never heard you describe yourself as a purely prescriptivist i mean you have a a, a five numeral scale on which you say sometimes the fight's over and the word's meaning has changed. What made you willing to allow for, for that?
1: Well, if you're an informed prescriptivist, you have to base your judgments on descriptions of how the language is actually used. But to stop short, if you say I'm merely going to describe some people do this and some people do that, but I'm not going to describe who these people are, that the people who do that have on the whole never graduated from high school, and the people who do this on the whole are college graduates. That's also part of the description. And and this does get into not only philosophy, as you say, but politics. Yes. So the standard form of, of the language in any language, this exists in every culture, whether it's French or Swahili or Mandarin, the standard form of the language is always the the form traditionally associated with people in positions of political power. So uh, the, the form of a language that, that has a literary tradition is, in a sense, about historical political power, and that bothers people.
0: Well, But the, very, but the thing that I know you feel is short-sighted is the very people that uh, they aim to help They're actually harming, but because they're not giving them, they're, they're not, um, giving them a tool. They're not allowing them to learn the standard form of the language. So I do think think that the college graduate thing is, I I would say, I do think that the college graduate, um, I think that college graduates now actually speak in many different dialects of English that they have a fluidity that perhaps they didn't even 20 years ago, that we didn't 20, you know, when I graduated college, um, I'm 48. So what, 26 years ago. Um, uh, but now I think because of the internet and texting and access to music and culture, they can switch modes very fast. And I think they want to own all different forms of, Of usage, and so I wonder how that—that's probably true.
1: But there was this view in the mid 20th century that you should—that we should not try to change the dialect into which somebody was born. Right. Well, by golly, I'm glad that my parents didn't have that attitude. I grew up in West Texas, and I grew up in an area in which there's a very strong regional dialect. But the idea that you are damned to speak the dialect that you're born into with no hope of, well, what is education if it's not transformational? And it is going to affect the way you you speak once you acquire the standard form of the language or even the ability to read it and understand it well. So, of course, as linguists say, we then engage in code switching and you can switch from one dialect to another. You become um, multi-dialectal or bi-dialectal. And and that's a good thing, but to say we're not even going to allow people to learn the standard form of the language or try to bring kids along to learn that in, in school is in effect damning them. Now, some linguists argued that what we should do instead of trying to train kids to speak standard english is we should train everybody to be tolerant of dialectal differences and so uh, the fact that you wouldn't hire a receptionist who speaks a certain dialect that that's supposed to reflect poorly on you not on the receptionist there's a great new yorker cartoon about merriam Uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionaries. I think it came out in 1963, this particular cartoon. It said uh, the editor-in-chief of of Merriam-Webster's third new international dictionary was Philip B. Gove. His name was Dr. Gove. And it has a receptionist answering the phone at Merriam-Webster saying, I'm sorry, Dr. Gove ain't in right now.
0: This episode of the moment is sponsored by stamps.com. And I feel like I should do a drum roll because I mean, uh, that is how, you know, this is, I'm um, actually, uh, I'm podcasting cause stamps.com is here. And, uh, that's, that means podcasts to me. Uh, you know, these days you can get practically everything on demand like this podcast. Listen, whenever you want, when it's convenient for you, though, I hope you listen every Tuesday when it comes out, like right away, like you're waiting all day. I can't wait. But the same kind of thing with Stamps.com. I mean, why are you still going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? Stamps.com, anything you can do at the post office, you can do right from your desk with Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. So you can get postage whenever you need it 24-7. You know this this uh, sponsorship came just at the right moment, and the reason I'm happy to talk about Stamps.com is the day that I was having the call with the Stamps.com people to talk about this great product. Amy, my wife, who's a novelist and whose movie I Smile Back is uh, was at Sundance this year and is going to be coming out this fall, uh, had a bunch of stuff she had to do for her career, her small business, which is writing these books. She had to send some signed novels to people, some posters for the movie, and uh, we live in Manhattan. And I I asked her what she was doing for the day. She said she was driving to Westchester, to the suburbs, so that uh, she could walk into a a post office that wasn't crowded, that would let her do her business in a reasonable amount of time. She was leaving where we live because getting to the post office, dealing with the hassle was such a drag. And I was like, but honey, your your husband's a podcaster. We'll get stamps.com and everything will be great. Um, And then she looked at me like I was an idiot because we didn't have Stamps.com yet, but we have it now. And here's a special offer so you can too. Right now, use my promo code MOMENT for this special offer, a no-risk trial, plus $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in MOMENT. That's stamps.com. Enter moment. Did do you ever feel, or did you ever feel before um, Wallace's article and the association with Justice Scalia that this was quixotic, this pursuit? Never. Never. L- right, like a true Quixote. Well, that's <laughs> right. A I true mean, Quixote would never yeah, feel I've, like it, uh, that. the journey was. I've always
1: known that there were some people out there who cared to write well and to speak well sure and um and let me tell you what the connection was with uh justice scalia please do because that that is a highly unusual thing and i was able late in wallace's life to bring scalia the scalia's and the wallace's together did you know that
0: uh, i i've read i mean you i've read i don't know them. the way in which it happened or or what they thought of one another
1: well uh i was uh, at the time interviewing judges all around the country, and I use video clips of judges in some of my teaching, and I was trying to get my first interview with the U.S. Supreme Court Justice. Justice Scalia turned me down, but he said, he wrote me a letter, very kind letter, saying I I won't do an interview, but I would like to meet with you next time you're in Washington because I know something about your linguistic views, and I'd like to have, have breakfast with you so i arranged that and over the course of the breakfast i talked him into doing an interview with me but the the turning point was where he he said you know there's this great article that describes people like like me and you and uh i forget what the term is i think i said uh, i think it's snoot snoot's the wallace family term and he said, that's it, snoots. And I said, that's David Foster Wallace. He said, exactly, yes. And I said, that piece is actually a review of my book. And he said, it is? And I said, yes. And he said, well, your stock has just risen greatly in my esteem. That's fantastic. I mean, And for- th- that was a turning point in the whole conversation.
0: What? Do those two minds have in common, do you think? I mean, did they have in common? When you think about the way that each uh, of them is able to process and synthesize uh, information and and then express, because they they seem to me to come at things from a very different place uh, thematically. But but where do you see the similarities, if you see any?
1: Well, I think they both... um have a an abiding I, I'm, I'm going to use present tense even for david good have an abiding interest in and sensitivity to language probably the greatest difference between the two is a temperamental one in which i would say david uh was racked by doubt and uh Justice Scalia is uh, often quite certain. Yeah, I I think that's basically a temperamental difference,
0: right? Uh, in the way, um, yeah, when you read when you read Wallace's fiction, you don't see it as much. By you know, you when you read about the process of the creation of that fiction and the letters that he wrote and you uh, and the conversations he had with his friends. You get a sense of the doubt. The fiction is so assured. And but the nonfiction is all about, I mean, the nonfiction is f- filled with what you're talking about. Going back on itself and checking his thinking.
1: That's right. And even my interview with him in Quack This Way, uh, you see this diffidence. Now, when I first saw the diffidence in his initial letter to me, yeah, saying things like, "You please don't feel obliged to read this. I've spent the last three months uh, writing it, but it's, it's way too long, probably. And you're way too busy. And you have no, I, I just want to be sure you don't feel in any way obliged to read it. Um, it's easy to read that kind of letter and think that he is striking a pose, that yes. that's not real, that he knows that he's a very important writer. And of course, he's writing 110 pages about me. Well, come on, who's not gonna read that? Um, But I later, as I got to know him, I came to understand that this diffidence was not any pose that he struck. It was genuine. That he, he in fact, was a very modest person and anything but, but presumptuous. And it was not just a rhetorical pose.
0: Yeah, in, in Lipsky's book, you, you get the sense that it was also a way to accommodate the the, the intellect, that his own intellect, that is a, or a way of reminding himself that he was human, in that uh, that he didn't have all the answers. I mean, but of course, the perch from which he was writing is very different from the perch that Justice Scalia is writing. I mean, Justice Scalia, especially if you believe the things he believes, um, has to write that authoritatively because he has to get people like me that um, upset. That's what uh, that's the (laughs) That's Otherwise, how would he possibly get me uh, wanting to march down there? But, you know, there are
1: other justices like Justice O'Connor, who are going to write in very kind of wishy washy ways, balancing tests. On the one hand, on the other hand. The
0: buddy movie we all want to see is Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Scalia, who are best friends and equally, um, you know, equally ch- right with equally charged pros uh, and like bring out the best in one another in a way. Right. R- rhetorically. Yeah. Amazing
1: to me, their friendship. Yes. yes. So uh, my wife and I just this last week went to see The Originalists in Washington, the play about justice scalia it's a one-act play and it's uh it's on the whole quite well done ed gerode is a wonderful i haven't seen it um depiction of justice scalia it's a little bit unrealistic about the way the the, Court. the law clerk uh, behaves in the justice's presence but um, but justice scalia is in fact a, he's a very kind extremely gregarious extremely loyal. He's as loyal as anybody I've ever... Known. Once he once he's decided you are his friend... That's it.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, you see it in the... I mean, just from afar in the relationship he has with Justice Ginsburg. Ginsburg, yeah, you do, yeah. Um, and, uh, and then you can see also his loyalty to his positions and so that they give each other... They give no quarter professionally and then away from it, they're friends. It's kind of a beautiful thing. What happened when you brought them together, though? Did you introduce when you... Well, were you, were you? I was. Were you there?
1: St- Started? No, I was not. I was just starting my collaboration with, um, with Justice Scalia, and he was still at that point in late. This would have been late two thousand six. He was still Justice Scalia to me. It may, may have been early two thousand seven, before he told me to call him Nino, which was a big turning a, point yeah, in sure. our relationship. But. He said, uh, my wife and I are flying out to Claremont. I'm giving a talk at the Claremont Colleges. And I just happened to be in touch with David. And I I think I called him and said, by the way, you ought to talk to the. Well, no, no, no. First, I said to Scalia, would you like to meet David Foster Wallace? Right. He said, absolutely. Do you think you could make that happen? So I called David and said would would you get in touch with the president of your university and um let him know that Justice Scalia wants to meet you and and uh if there's any way he could make that happen so they had a wonderful uh lunch together the Scalias and the Wallaces and David told me later he was feeling a great deal of cognitive dissonance because he 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 does not he did not believe in a lot of the political positions that he understood Justice Scalia to stand for, but he was enormously drawn to this character. He was enormous, enormously drawn to the man.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if you've ever read Ethan Kanan's book of uh, four stories called "The Palace Thief." Uh, he's a great short story writer Ethan Kanan, and he describes men uh, he's talking about men or women, but who reach a certain level of political prominence, and it talks about when you're in the room with them they make all that other stuff just go away it's what they're able to connect they're, they they the the empathy that they almost all have to have or the um impression of empathy is so great right i mean you must see that as you go around and meet the top partners in these firms or people who've gotten to these high levels right frequently yes yes frequently, frequently. often
1: but you hear that about george w bush uh, whom I met only briefly when he was governor of Texas, but, uh, people who are not drawn to him or his politics when they say, when they're alone with him or in a small group, that he is simply the most magnetic, likable, uh,
0: personable man in the world. That you could vote, I mean, that, that you, you talk about this, that you voted for someone who mangled the language, uh, so much is very, uh, interesting. Uh, Also, I thought interesting before when you were talking about um, what descriptivists believe, you started to say what they think. This is, I thought, a great sort of use of words and why words are so important. You started to say what they think, and you changed it to believe. As though if they were using their critical thinking faculties, they couldn't possibly. You said think, and then you went to believe. Did I I really? Yeah, I think you did it. I don't know if you did it advisedly or not, but if people go back, they'll hear that. And I thought, oh, those words mean something different. They do, as though almost you can't understand how they could possibly think those things. But but here's the here's the thing, Brian. You you do, and um, you're you It's funny. You're painting yourself in a way as being much more of a prescriptivist than than you thought I would. Than you are when I read your book, When I read your books,
1: you know, because the language. I first does met shit. David Foster Wallace on a radio interview that he and I did for a, the Boston. National Public Radio thing. I think it's still it's still up, and we had not met each other in person. But toward the end of that interview, he said, uh, "Mr. Garner." He kept calling me Mr. Garner. In fact, it took a while for him to stop calling me Mr. Garner. More and polite than I am. Keep yeah. insisting that he call me Brian. And he he said, "Well, Mr. Garner is coming across as much more prescriptivist than than I." really ever thought he was and he was kind of surprised by that but i but why why do you say that
0: i'm surprised because um you do if i were listening to this i would think that uh to you the language is immovable and that it's um that words have to hold only their original meaning but in fact you reading when you go through your book and i uh, You find word after word, expression after expression, where just because something has been done a certain way doesn't mean that to you it's the best way. And it seems to me you're open to new, better uses. You don't like sloppy, um, wishy-washy usage or unclear usage. And you don't want fancy words for the sake of fanciness is what I get when I engage with the material. I'm a realist, and I know I know that uh,
1: my generation will have to die off before before everybody thinks that preventative is okay, as opposed to preventive. And I'm unlikely really ever to change my mind about that. And, uh, except I do empirical work. I do a great deal of empirical work, and if I'm the only speaker left saying preventive and everybody else says preventative, I'm going to have to throw, uh, throw away that stance. But I'm of course hoping that that people will continue understanding that the adjective follows the noun. The noun is not preventation, it's prevention, and that we say preventive. And, and that, that that's just an extra syllable that a lot of sloppy speakers throw in. But language does change, and often in very surprising ways. The word Nimrod, And you talk about originalism and original meaning, you know, the fixed meaning canon, which I, Justice Scalia the other day called me the original originalist. Wow. And he said, uh, Garner's views are in line with mine on statutory and contractual interpretation 100%. And that is actually, uh, that's true. It's not an exaggeration. So let's say there's a 1920 statute that that says all Nimrods must carry a license.
0: Now, what is a Nimrod to you? Yeah. I, you know, I've read and forgot. I God. I have forgotten what the original meaning of the word but what, is. But what do
1: you think of a Nimrod as being?
0: Adult. A what? Adult. Adult. Yes. An nincompoop.
1: Yeah. a simpleton, uh, somebody of low IQ. So let's say, somebody sues a state to invalidate this law. Virginia has a law that says all Nimrods must carry licenses. It was enacted in 1920, and this this may be discriminatory against people of low intellect. Well, do we apply the modern meaning of Nimrod or do we apply the meaning of 1920? It meant Hunter. The only, if you look at any pre-2000 dictionary, the only meaning of Nimrod was Hunter. And
0: it changed. Then Dick Cheney shot the guy who was uh, hunting with. That's (laughs) right. And we all changed it to dogs. Mr. Nimrod, no. No,
1: No, it was Elmer Fudd. Right. It was Bugs Bunny popping out of his hole and saying in a very derogatory tone, Nimrod, and then he would come out of another hole, Nimrod. Awesome. And that caused everybody under the age of about 60 to believe that a Nimrod is a dummy. Now, when I brought this up with Justice Scalia, he, he didn't believe me. He said, you don't know what you're talking about. A Nimrod's a hunter. And I said, no, 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 ask your law clerks. He called his law clerks in. He was, astonished that they thought that Nimrod meant a dummy and they didn't know any other meaning. So, yes, language evolves, language changes, but does a statute evolve? Does the language of a governing legal text evolve? And we apply modern
0: meaning, I mean, if that's the guide. Well, in the statutes you hit. have the opportunity to define, even I you know, can define the terms, so you can actually be very specific about what Nimrod means. Uh, but it, it, um, but you used percent a second ago and um, used it at the end of a sentence. But if you used it in the middle of a sentence, you wouldn't put the little period after cent, right? And, like I was reading the Finance Year right. Theodore Dreiser's book the other day, mm. and he uses percent all the time because it's a book about fi- the world of finance. And you know, it was uh, there's a period after it,
1: and he probably made it two words. Yeah,
0: two words with a period, space, cnt space,
1: period. Right. Right.
0: Um, are you cool with that change?
1: Absolutely, percent in American English is solid, and it's no longer seen as an abbreviation. Now
0: he was, but um, he was an American writer, Chicago-born uh, mm. writer, and wrote in uh, Illinois. Why should we? Uh, so ha- explain the justification for 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 being fine with that change, um, but not uh, with somebody saying, "Hey, man, I played really good today."
1: Uh, it's you know, it's a,
0: it's an interesting thing.
1: We don't hyphenate today either, and at the same time, Theodore Dreiser was was putting a period and spelling percent as two words. A lot of people are hyphenating today.
0: Emerson: The the sun shines today. It's two dash day.
1: And today, it's today. It is uh, solid, and so a lot of words undergo this solidification, um, and hyphens get lost mid-word. That's a normal sort of progression in the language. I'm in favor of making case law a solid word and not two words. But most lawyers, even today, make it two words. A lot of the British hyphenated. Uh, but I played good. It's it's. There's a different kinds of changes. To say I played good in, as opposed to I played well. Well,
0: in sport, you know, um, like I could, I, it's possible I I could come off of. Uh, the tennis court. Now, I know what I'm supposed to say, right? But it's possible that if someone said, how would you play? I played real good out there. Now, maybe that's because I've heard tennis players, professional tennis players say that. And it feels somehow, I feel more of a kinship with them, more like the real thing. If I, this is not conscious, but if I answer in the way that they answer. Maybe that's because I love dialogue, right? That's why I write dialogue. And the way I look at it is I, I just say
1: to myself, well... Okay, I'm, the person comes down a notch linguistically, but you know it could be, it could be. Boy, I thought this person was literate, but uh, maybe a little less so than I thought. The same is true of golfers, or let's take Olympic swimmers. At the last Summer Olympics, it was astounding to me that swimmers don't know how to inflect their own verb: swim, swam, swum. Right. And they would say, I haven't swam that well lately or something like that. And it should have been swum. So what does that say? I think athletes have never been uh, the best at using language. We we kind of expect that they're not going to. In fact, if you find a highly eloquent and literate athlete, it's kind of surprising. You think, whoa, against stereotype, and that's good
0: eloquent and and literate do those th- are those things always paired in your mind
1: no because i think you can find some some people of little education who will some event will occur in their little town and they'll go on cnn and you'll find somebody who is basically not very literate but extremely eloquent and and touching and
0: memorable and endearing Um, And that can happen. This episode of The Moment is sponsored by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses so you can easily track what you spent for work and what you spent on yourself. It also helps take the guesswork out of your estimated federal quarterly taxes. So come tax time, you know how much money to set aside for the government and how much stays in your pocket. Explore what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at com slash moment. That's TrySelfEmployed.com slash moment. What bothers me is something that bothers me about myself, not something, uh, well, the misuse of the word myself it maybe drives me crazier than anything else. But um, what, what bothers me is that um, my sympathies are naturally with that receptionist who maybe we wouldn't know was smart enough to hire because she mangled, or he mangled the English language, and I want to be a, the kind of person who can look past that. You know the story um, that's at the beginning of one of Salinger's books about the the dun-colored mare. It's an old parable where uh, someone sends somebody to find, a, you know, a black stallion, and uh, the person comes back and says, "I found." The horse—it's a, a dun-colored mare—and the the point the philosopher makes in telling the story is, wow! I didn't know he'd gotten that advanced that he could actually see past the exterior and see inside the dun-colored mare, the black stallion. But language is a shorthand. It is the only it, it, it And so I, when I hear somebody use definition number two of literally. Um, I do immediately, and I, I hate myself for this, but I immediately uh, ding them, as you said you would, uh, and I uh, immediately go, oh, not as smart as I thought. But wh- why Why is that? Like, why do you think that judgment uh, attaches to use of language so quickly? And is there any way to remediate that other than by changing their usage?
1: Mm. Well, it's not just language. We're judging people in all sorts of ways. Uh, you've been sizing me up for the last hour as I've been sizing you up for the last hour. We've been we've been aware of the extent to which we make eye contact. If you were if you were comp- always averting your eyes, for example, that would affect probably the way sure. I perceive you. Um, the way we're both dressed. I mean, that probably is something that that. Uh, we've been aware of people do this all the time now you people can disclaim that they're sizing other people up but in fact within 60 seconds of beginning to speak to somebody you know a good deal about the level of education of that person maybe where the person grew up now you are you know more about these things the more the more educated you are and, and, and in a sense this is kind of the 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 great lie that we have about class in this country, that there are a lot of people who deny that, that class, apart from money, money class is not about money primarily at all. But uh, you hear politicians all the time talk about people moving into the middle class, they mean middle income. But if you talk about class in terms of, of taste and culture, the people who make the finest distinctions are the most cultured uh, people. The, the, the people, there are a lot of people who are just unaware of all the distinctions that that many that, that are there, we're not inventing them, but the more sensitive you are to behavior and taste, uh, the more
0: you, you simply notice things. Yeah, often uh, people who have a lot of education are Cloistered and they're, they're They they have a harder time seeing outside seeing the dun-colored mayor they um, You know, I, I've been sitting here thinking about Jay-Z uh, You know a, a billionaire um, someone who's incredibly beyond uh, Eloquent beyond intelligent and it would have been so easy for people to miss that but because of maybe the way he dressed or spoke and his definition, the way that he would define class, might be quite different. Um, and so I, you, you're left. So he's
1: probably very aware of it, but he he's also um,
0: no. He, I'm sure he has a deep understanding of semiotics. Yes. There's no question. Yeah, he's yeah. he's employing, deploying, and employing right. s- semiotics all the time. But it 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 is um, it does strike me as unfair. But I don't know what to do about it. That we make these these judgments based on language. You know someone says penultimate to mean second to. There's someone who is in my work life who has to speak on my behalf sometimes and uh, I am so not going to explain say, to the
1: audience. Penultimate means next to last.
0: It doesn't mean the greatest, right? Thank you for doing that. And this person I'm not going to say what this person's gender is because then they will know that I'm talking about them. But um and I've been trying to figure out how to say That word doesn't mean that because this person speaks on my behalf to the world sometimes. Mm. So how do you do it in real life? How? (laughs) Your wife is sitting here Mm. and she's actually put her head in her hands for the first time during this. So in real life, you're um, at uh, a religious ceremony or you're at a restaurant and a waiter is talking to you or a relative and they misuse a word like that. What do you do in the normal? How do you, how do you gently or how do you?
1: Well, I come from a family in which uh, everyone is trying to catch everyone else in errors. Sure. I, that's my family. Right. And and so we kind of, uh, it's not not exactly a little one-upmanship one but it, it still happens with my father, for example, when I go to see him or if he reads something that I've written and he wants to question something. Or if I say something in a way that surprises him, I'm trying to um, remember, ebullient, ebullient. Um, there was a faculty member at his university who insisted that it was ebullient instead of ebullient. And and so little debates like this, and let's go look it up, let's find out, uh, that's very much a part of our family culture. And you know if it comes to to a waitress um i you simply don't correct them but vichyssoise now if if somebody says we have vichyssoise on the menu i will probably Carl, say oh this is called potato soup i will have vichyssoise and i'll no, you'll hit it hard and you'll hit it really hard and i'm really or i'm bothered by people saying concierge instead of concierge. Right. and the, the, this is all kind of a faux french
0: thing that they don't, so they don't understand how to say it in oh, French. Soup du jour of the day is my favorite.
1: That's, that's right. Why if that's I have right. to pick one that would that's be my right. favorite,
0: that would be it. In that area. My, like my, my son, who's in, in, you know, very, very bright and uh, you know, great school and is a, and a really staggeringly good writer, um, misplaced uh, tenant for tenant. Oh, yeah. And I was elated that I got to catch him on it because he'll nail me. That's right. But I'm talking about outside well, of the- Within the family, uh, it's great.
1: So my favorite restaurateur, a lot of people say tour, but restaurateur in Dallas is a guy named Dean Fearing. And the other day, Caroline and I were at Fearing's restaurant and the, the waiter said, vichyssoise. So I, I, I had, when Dean came over, I said, Dean, I've got to tell you something. You've got to have a meeting with your whole staff please explain to them it's vishiswas that you do have that final sibilant syllable and he said thank you so much was, was somebody here saying sois?" i
0: said yes so sometimes you, that, just, you can do it that way well no uh, restaurateur restaurateur you're saying is how you, restaurateur restaurateur yeah how's it spelled no, no n. n no n okay but you've lost that one Have I? You've lost. I don't think so. Well, because if you asked um, all the restaurateurs who own all the restaurants, they would tell you that they're restauranteurs. And the word is written in like by the time Gourmet Magazine and um, The Times and The Journal are using... Restaurant tour Mario Batali. Haven't Please you? Please stop saying this. You're spreading haven't
1: it. Haven't you lost? You're, would everybody turn off the podcast at this point? <laughs> because he keeps that, saying it incorrectly, and you're going to think it's uh, well, has an well, end. Well,
0: so like, I know we have to end this, but I, I there are just a couple of really specific things well, that I happen. Well, I, 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 I'm not
1: really urging people to turn it off, but no, I know. the restaurateur. Oh, I didn't think if, you were. I was you, just saying
0: I'd used up an hour of your life. If so you read you
1: The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, Atlantic Monthly, the only thing you'll find is restaurateur and that's what you'd
0: find in any literate uh if you put journal. in lexus nexus restaurateur restaurateur which is coming up more i'll tell you what have you do you know google engrams
1: engrams yeah and you can do a if you if
0: you right. look at it all published the, books the timing of the usage and yet.
1: probably restaurateur did not come in until the late 19th century restaurateur is going to be way up and restaurateur will be barely a blip in published books, even up to 2008.
0: What about, and it only goes to 2000? Yeah, it stops in 2008,
1: right uh-huh.
0: now. I mean, the, but what the, if we LexisNexis did, it, or you can't, does that not, oh, what would happen then, do you think? That, that, that matters, but
1: it, I think you would still find restaurateur uh, is, it outnumbers restaurateur.
0: So I was having this, uh, one concern or, or uh, a question is, why do you think people are so sensitive in this area, um, you know, can be so easily insulted if you and are so worried. Um, you know, I think about the way people misuse "I," and uh, I would say that it is misused far more frequently than "me" is misused because the default position uh, everybody takes is to just say "especially I. after and yes yes they yeah. um and." Uh, when I've I've given this far too much, th- you know, not as much thought as uh, you gave it in high school, but I've like given it way too much thought. And I, where I've come down is that it's elementary school. It seems an easy rule. They're made to feel foolish for getting it wrong, and they are are mocked for it by teachers. And so they just decide that the formal uh, thing to do is to use I and and i think it's fear based they 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 think that it's a a signal for being stupid is the word me and so that's why you get myself and i so much because people don't know when when they don't know when to use me and i uh, so, so, so i wonder if that's says, because um they believe there's this hierarchical thing and so that's scared them in a way yeah that's the whole root of
1: hypercorrection so we had a kid uh who was an intern working for us what a year ago who kept saying my buddies and me are going to do so-and-so. I, I couldn't believe it, but I was just absolutely adamant that I had to get him to say it correctly. Uh, my buddies and I are, but it is that fear and that correction that leads then people to use I when it, when it's the object of a preposition or a verb It's hyper-correction. But, Yes. I mean, you're not judging the person down as a person. It's more important to have a good heart than to use the language well. It's more important to be honest, to be fair, to be straight dealing with people than it is to know how to use pronouns. But we do, we do assess people's background in terms of reading and in terms of uh, basic literacy uh, based on how they use language and there there is an element saying that this is the last bastion of discrimination uh, we're discriminating against people based on how they use language well you also discriminate against people based on how they sit and how they how they behave and how they they either remember or forget to say please and thank you and there are all sorts of things in that sense language is a behavior and you expect people of a certain level of learning and culture and cultivation to know how to pronounce words and how to how to use the language without flailing around and sort of massacring. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean,
0: I, I just wonder I wonder how um, how much it, it has to do for, for, for me with um, just how happy I am when the language is used in a euphonious way. Is that a word? sure it is okay but you know what in a weird way i have become happy
1: every time i discover an error it makes me happy right because i get to write about it and hey this is a new entry yes now my father keeps t that's that's a verb i suppose he keeps sending me these video clips of mispronunciations that he sees on the nightly Newscasts, And for a year, I was getting almost every day, Brian Williams mispronouncing a word. So my dad started this Brian Williams watch. We've got to get w- rid of Brian. He was Williams. on it. He was and on it ahead of time. He knew. He didn't know how to say jubilant. He would say jubilant and he would say jubilation and he would mispronounce all kinds of words. And My father thought this was uh, scandalous and I did, too. And, uh, in fact, that's the real scandal
0: right there. Well, you know, David Brinkley in his book talked about how he wanted to do this, go on air, because it drove him so crazy. Have you ever read David Brinkley's, uh, wrote a, uh, his memoir? One of the things that it drove him crazy, he'd listen to the radio in the beginning and couldn't understand how people who were on the radio didn't know how to pronounce words and didn't understand the rhythm of what to emphasize. I'll, I'll leave with this question um, or, or your Thank answer you to for this that. question. I'm going to look it up now. You'll find it. You'll yeah. enjoy it. Um It was, oh, it's an old, you know, um, it's probably the book's 20 years old. I remember reading it back then. Um, But I've been thinking about, you're a golfer and I'm a a golfer. I love golf. Uh, I don't like a lot of what golf sometimes stands for. And so I was having this conversation with somebody at I don't know what that means. Well, I'm going to tell you. I was having this uh, uh, conversation with someone at the place I play golf. Because I uh, feel like people should be able to wear cargo shorts when they play golf. And his answer to me felt uh, like uh, a tautology. He said, uh, he employed what I would say is a downward spiral argument. I said, you know, cargo shorts are very practical for golf because it's nothing to do with fashion. It's, um, there are many pockets. And so I can put my tees in one and my ball markers in another. And I can understand where everything is and it'll increase pace of play. Real reasons. That was my only reason. I didn't care. But he said, Okay, but the distance between playing golf in cargo shorts and then playing in how far away from then playing in jeans and T-shirts. And in a way, that argument is no argument, right? Because w- well, what is the value that, 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 that he's uh, freighting the jeans with? The, I don't understand. I, I, and it started me really thinking about Well, what he was really talking about is playing golf makes me feel classy. It makes me feel rich. And so I said, well, you know, um, there's a club out in the Hamptons called The Bridge. A bunch of billionaires started it. They did. They wear jeans and T-shirts out there and they don't need to feel rich because they are rich. Now, to me... Uh, I wouldn't care if somebody played golf, you know, if someone's a good golfer, I, I want to play with you. You're three. I want to play with you if you're wearing and I, you know, if I'm playing at your club, I wear whatever you guys want. And if you're at my place, you can wear whatever you want. But um, but I wonder if uh, if I should feel the same way about the language and I, but somehow I, I somehow I don't. It's just another it is just another sort of signal that that we send, isn't it?
1: I suppose it is. But I think you're right about country clubs and. The dress codes and i just i really hadn't thought about it a lot until just now but there are many photographs of me as a teenager at the two country clubs that i played at all the time wearing jeans and there was nothing nothing wrong with that at all and i'll tell you what i would rather have you out there in your cargo pants than somebody playing in those 1970s polyester <laughs> uh, multicolored loud pants that used to be all the vogue on the tour, bright orange and oh, yeah. red, white, and blue. Yeah, every and time like
0: Johnny that. Miller starts talking, I want to remind him of what he was wearing back then. Absolutely. Exactly right. Uh, pretty tasteless. From Brian Garner to all the golfers of the 70s, pretty tasteless. Um, Listen, I'm such an admirer of your work. I really just think that um, you... Uh, are doing something that I just is so rewarding to me. Um, I can't tell if it's a fight that you can win. I can't even tell if ultimately I think that like in my worldview that I should want you to win, but somehow I do. Well, thank you. It is a losing fight
1: in the end, but don't you think a lot of the best fights are losing fights?
0: There's no doubt about it. Thank you very much for being here and for doing this people. Um, if you want to find uh, Brian Garner's work, a couple of things. He's on Twitter at, and we'll settle we'll settle many of your um, disputes on Twitter. You see, you enjoy it, right? When people ask you these oh, questions I on yeah. and you're at what's your name on at Twitter? At Brian A Garner, his uh, with a Y. Brian A Garner. Brian is with a Y. The website, if you're interested in finding out about the seminars, is lawpros.org. I insist, as much as I can insist, that you um, get Modern American Usage, Volume Three. When's Volume Four coming? The fourth edition,
1: fourth hard, sorry, third third hard to edition. know. The third edition has uh, been out for about five years, but I'm working on the fourth. Is, it's literally,
0: gonna, it's, is literally going to be a three or a four now? Where is literally? Is you know, better?
1: I think I have literally a two or three. It's probably a three. Stage five means it's okay. Uh, it's not going to be stage five. uh isn't Without. it a four
0: now, though? It drives me crazy. But isn't it a four? The other use of literally, isn't it? But what? I literally. How many dictionaries? I literally have to, hit the ceiling. So how many dictionaries have to? AP decide? has
1: AP has uh, caved in on this one. Has OED? Um, yeah, OED is very descriptive and very non-judgmental, and which is fine for what it's doing. Um, but yeah, it's 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 not going to move past stage four
0: with me. I don't think. <laughs> That's great. That one drives me. I'll never never use it to mean figuratively, but I think we've lost that one. It just means figuratively now. So we have to say actually, I think, right? Does actually now mean what literally used to mean?
1: I suppose uh, people tend to think of that as
0: being more literal than literally, actually. You have actually just explained why this is important. Hopefully. On that hopeful note, we're going to end. Thanks for listening to The Moment. You can find me, um, Brian Koppelman, on Twitter. If you want to email me, it's themomentbk at gmail.com. I normally say don't send me any screenplays. Don't send me any television scripts because those... Now I'm going to tell you, it's not just that I'm going to throw them out. I'm going to send them to Mr. Garner for grammatical review and send them back to you. <laughs> and, um, but I'm going to add, uh, one, I'm going to append one thing to that, which is the following. Please uh, also um, don't write a screed about justice scalia to me i don't like a lot of those decisions either but uh that's not the point of this particular podcast thanks everybody bye